This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com, Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Hello and welcome along to the latest episode of the Rugby Pod Sessions and I'm joined today by former South African international Brian Majati. How are you mate? I'm good, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. Is this the first time you've been in a podcast situation? Because you're not really sure of what um, you're sure what to expect? Or? This is the first time I've been in a professional podcast situation. Like you guys have a sofa and everything. I tried to do a podcast on my own actually, then I kind of lost interest in the idea. Was this the Life of Brian video? Um, is it? That was an extension of that. Yeah. The Life of Brian was... A YouTube thing. <laughs> is the life I also of Brian did. coming back? Or I've done a video which is a little different, but it's just about what's it been like since I retired. What has it been like for you since you've been retired? It's um, it's been interesting. Uh, I've, I've spoken to a bunch of guys who say, who told me that you know when you retire, you've like everyone has some level of a plan, but once you actually get to it, it's you know it's it's a whole different story. Mm. You know what I mean? But uh, it's been interesting. I've ups and downs, but I've had a good time. So you had a plan, and it hasn't worked out, or? Well, not not necessarily. I think uh, the biggest problem with the way I retired is I I was signed at the Osprey. I went to the Ospreys, uh, and I signed a new contract. And about a week after I signed the new a two year contract, um, I woke up one morning and I went to the gym, and all the strength in my right arm was gone. I don't know what, what happened. I just woke up. We went to the gym. I was trying to bench press 60 kilos and I couldn't. And um, so I went I went in for some physio. I thought, oh, maybe I slept funny. Uh, they treated me. They were also a bit puzzled. Uh, a week went by, still no strength in my arm. So they sent me to see as a specialist. who sent me for MRI. And uh, after, I don't know, two weeks or so, I still hadn't improved. So they sent me to see another yeah, specialist for a second opinion. And he had no idea either. And then I went to see... Uh, neurologist and a spinal surgeon and a shoulder surgeon i spent then I, I spent about six months um getting tested and screened uh i saw a whole bunch of neurospecialists around the uk and the, the consensus at the end was that i had had some sort of virus that they couldn't some autoimmune virus that was destroying the the nerves down my arm wow in my right arm and uh because of that just a few of the muscles in my arm and my rotator cuff weren't firing, so I couldn't curl, I couldn't bench press, I couldn't. And then I had to pack it in. Wow, what was like? What was that like mentally? Like when you realised I'm gonna have to. It was really tough because there was a lot of there was just a lot of uncertainty. Um, I was going to see doctors. And I was just checking a, like a peep at the receipts and stuff. Some of these guys were charging like four hundred quid for a session just to consult with me, like like high-end doctors and they were all puzzled so i was like i was a bit worried and um there's a disease called uh gbs guillain barre syndrome and um what happens is you you start losing 
like control of your muscles and uh, some patients end up becoming paralyzed. So I spent a few weeks thinking that that was the case. And uh, eventually that that wasn't, um, they said that I'd recover somewhat, but after about six months, that'd be the extent of my recovery. And they would uh, gauge to see if I should play any play again. And by the time it came to that six months, uh, I'd really been out for like 10 months. By then, the Ospreys had, had canceled my contract and uh, I just thought, fuck it, let's do something else. Insurance? No. I had insurance, but insurance has thoroughly screwed me over. Really? I have, uh, yeah, they told me when it started, uh, it, was, it was crazy because the, the physio, the head physio at the Osprey said to me, um, he pulled me aside after, but we'd been, we'd been bouncing around going to London and Cardiff and all these places. And uh, he said to me, look, um, I've never seen anything like this and I'm a bit worried about this. And because there's so much gray area, I think that um, we should start putting together the paperwork for a career-ending injury because the insurers usually take, you know, six, seven, eight months to to process these. They're going to want to investigate. They're going to want... So if we just start the paperwork now and you recover at some point, then we just bin it. But at least if it's started, then... By the time, if we, if we come six months down the road, at least we're three months ahead of the curve, if you know what I mean. Mm. And I was, I was like, what the fuck is this guy talking about? I've just, like, I, nothing happened. I wasn't, I wasn't injured. Nothing happened in the game. Nothing. I just literally woke up. Nothing mm. happened at all. There was no pain. I, I felt fine. I just had no strength in my arm for some reason. So I thought that, I thought that he was being a bit, you know. Over the top. Over the top. And, um. That was, that was probably the one thing I should have listened to. And I just thought, no, no let's just leave it. It's going to be fine. Because I don't know, when you're, I think when you are a professional athlete, you, you have to, you only get there because you believe in yourself. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and it's hard to, to turn that switch off. And I, I, I never believed for a second that it was over until someone told me to my face and said, look, look at all the evidence. There's nothing we can do. I think you should do something else with your life. Then I was like, oh, okay. Then I said, what about another opinion? And he said, seriously, mate, pack it in. So the retirement was tricky because of that, because I wasn't, I was like, I'd have like highs and lows on days. So I think I'm going to be fine. And I think, fuck, I've got to make a plan for more fall if this goes tits up. And then I'm going to be fine. So I was just going like that. And then when it happened, then I was like, okay, let me, let me do my insurance thing. And, uh. I, I filed all these insurance papers. They said they'd assess me in six months to see how much I'd recovered, even though I'd been out for six months already. Um, six months later, I'm sending these guys emails. I'm calling, and they're not responding. They're not calling me back or nothing. So I was like, okay. Um, I get back in touch with my agent, and I'm like, look, this is the situation. He tries to get a hold of them. Nothing. The people in the Os- at the Ospreys, um, they, they were like, listen, try to get a hold of um, the, the WRPA or the RPA or whatever. I did that and uh, made no headway whatsoever. And uh, eventually my my agent got them to see me, but it had been a year since I stopped playing. And they assessed me. And then about two, three weeks ago, they told me, no, they're not going to pay me because they think... (laughs) This is is such a crazy story. Um, They think that I went to... But in 2016, uh, after a scrumming session, I went in for some physio on my neck because I had a stiff neck. And they are arguing now that that is a reason that I retired almost two years later. And um, it doesn't make any sense because I wouldn't have passed a medical. I was even on my medical records from sale. I wasn't actually injured. I just came in for physio treatment and they're trying mm. to. So, yeah, 
So that's another fight I'm in. I guess like it's one of those ones that that's that's probably not over. I guess like there's going to be a bit more fighting and haggling to go to get some get some dollar out of them. I think that's what you're supposed to do. But uh, I've got a I've got a friend of mine who played at Northampton Saints who broke his neck, and uh, he had a similar situation. And he was telling me that uh, he tried to get just like I did, try to get help from the RPA, the WRPA, and all. He did all this stuff, and they were everyone. There's a weird thing about when you retire how it's you know the, the game just moves on without you you know what mm. I mean? and um it's tough if you're in a position where you still need people involved to help you if you've if you've retired and you've got into a job and you're doing something and your life is going on then that's fine but if you still need to call someone at this club and call someone at that club they seem to always be a bit too busy all of a sudden mm. and now that you're also you're not in the club and you're not going there every day you're not yeah. in their faces they can kind of put you to a side a little bit more yeah it's yeah because this happened at the ospreys you know or yeah. in swansea and i live in northampton now so i'm like right. four hours away as well so yeah not ideal as far as like your background goes you, you were born in zimbabwe mm. you grew up there as well didn't you yes i did what was that like because you know you see zimbabwe on the news these days and you know it's, it's know, hard it's, to get a, a, a true gauge of what it's really like growing up there how do you how do you explain it? You know, it's one of those things where if you're sat by yourself, this is a stupid analogy, but if you're sat by yourself in this room and and you farted, right? You just you just carry on with your day. Yeah, it stinks, but it's not it doesn't affect you. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. only when other people come and they're like, "What the fuck are you doing in there?" It stinks. In there. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that's what Zimbabwe is like. Obviously, you're in there. It's it's horrible. Like the economy wasn't great, and a lot of things weren't ideal. But that's where I grew up, and it was normal. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. it's not like it's not a terrible place. It's just like a slightly run-down South Africa. Yeah. Yeah, but um, it was good. I went to I went to a really good school, um, you know, well, relative, you know, to Zimbabwe, but uh, one of the better schools there. I uh, played rugby, got into it, and um, I went to Craven Week, which is like, uh, I don't know, there's, I don't think there's anything like it anywhere else in the world where it's like, it's like the biggest schoolboy tournament in South Africa. Just about everyone that plays rugby professionally is played at Craven Week. So I went to Craven Week and uh, playing for Zimbabwe and I thought, geez, I've got to come here and uh, work out how to play rugby here. And mm. long story short, now here we are. And as far as playing rugby um, goes in, in mm. Zimbabwe, what what got you to South Africa? World Cup 95, big deal when I was a kid. I was playing rugby at school because I had to, because everyone else was doing it. But then when I, when I saw the whole thing on TV, I thought, wow, this is cool. And um, as I got older, I was... It went more from just a game that I played in the afternoon to be like something I was really into. And uh, eventually there was a Springbok prop named Lawrence Park, if you've ever heard of him. Mm. Uh, he played for the Springboks. And I remember seeing him on TV in 2001. And I thought to myself, fuck, if he can do it. Because I'd never seen a black prop before, ever, yeah. let alone playing for South Africa. So I saw him and I thought... If he can do it, that means, not not that I'm going to do it, but that means that there's a chance I could do it. That was like the biggest like aha moment. And then I I sort of battled to try to make the first team so I could go to Craven Week. I, I didn't make the Craven Week squad the first time on my first swing. The next year I did. And then I went to Craven Week. And uh, we we had what I thought was a great team. <laughs> we went over there and uh, we got we got hammered by everyone. So you uh, had the beast in your team as well, didn't you? Is it? Beast, beast was in our team. He was our number eight. Uh, he was, <laughs> he was our number eight, and um, even even Beast couldn't get signed up by anyone or anything. 
on, on that year. He went again the next year. Then I think that's when the Sharks picked him up. But um, that's basically how it works. You go to Craven Week and there's sort of scouts and agents everywhere and guys from the Bulls, guys from the Lions, guys from everyone. And they'll, they'll you know, contract guys on small little contracts where so they come into the under-21 setups and, and that sort of thing. So that was the goal of going to Craven Week. Right. We go to Craven Week. We played um, Border Country Districts and the first game we lost 60 nil. Ooh, yeah, so it wasn't... Then how's the dream looking then? Uh, the dream was, was completely <laughs> shattered because um, we, we lost the following two games. We played three games. We lost all three games. No one stood out or anything in our team. So um, we fuck off back to Zimbabwe. And obviously the economy's bad and things aren't great. So, you know, I'm looking at maybe getting a job or something. And I, I still want to play rugby, but I stopped because I'm not in school. And I hadn't played rugby. I'd just been chilling at home. I get a job at a bar. I started working as a barman. There was a, there was a local rugby club. I trained there a couple of times, played with them a few times just socially. But I wasn't, I hadn't been to the gym since since high school. And uh, a buddy of mine, when I was working at the bar, came in. A buddy I went to Craven Week with, um, maybe six months the previous year before. And he was like, yeah, um, I'm back from university. I'm going to go to the University of Johannesburg. And uh, I'm playing rugby over there. I'm like, you're playing rugby? And he was like, yeah, I'm playing rugby. I'm at, I'm, you know, I've got a contract at the Lions. I'm like, all right. I mean, he's my, he's my friend, but you know, not being disrespectful to him or whatever, but he wasn't that great of a rugby player. And right. I'm like, I'm like thinking to myself, fucking hell, this guy, you know, he was pretty average. He's playing for the Lions and I'm pulling pints in Zimbabwe, you know? So I thought, okay, um, let me see what I can get from this guy. So seven more beers and I'm like, look, um, do you happen to have the number of the coach? Like if I wanted to call him and end trial or whatever. And he's like, no, it doesn't work that way. You know, you got to, you got to go through the trials and all that shit. But I'm like, just give me the number just in case. And I'll, I'll try it. And he gives me the number as, as a joke. And I take the number. I go home the following morning. Um, I call him up and I say, Hey, my name is Brian Jati. I played Zim at, at Craven Week, but you know, I've, for some reason I was overlooked, but I'm actually a really great rugby player. I told him I benched 150 kilos. I could score <laughs> 250. I was like 18 at the time, complete bullshit. And, uh, and then he laughed. And then he, he was like, cause obviously I think he could tell that I was just talking shit, but I just wanted him to give me some sort of chance. And he's like, well, we're going to have trials for like other guys who we might look at in two weeks. If, if you can get here, I'll have a look at you. Then I'm like, really? And he's like, yeah, sure, why not? Uh, I put the phone down. I told my dad, I told my mom and dad, and um, they were like, okay, do you want to go? And I'm like, yeah, uh, we put some money together. I go get a visa, I get on a bus, go to South Africa, and eventually I'm playing for the Lions. And wow. <laughs> so how long was it until you actually played for the Lions from the day you made that phone call to the day you played for the Lions? <laughs> um, it was it was a bit weird because I, I made the phone call. We made the agreements to go or the plans to go with my family, and I went to get a visa. And they wouldn't give me a visa. They wouldn't give me anything except for a holiday visa. And ca the visa came out the day I was supposed to be in South Africa for these trials. So I just got the visa and I just went and mm. I showed up there three four days after their trial and stuff. They had they did they, they did their weights at um, Ellis Park at the time so i just showed up there and they, they did their weights like six in the morning i come with everything i own i show up there at six in the morning and i'm like i'm here i i couldn't get my visa but i'm here and mm. this guy he laughs again he's like this fucking kid's crazy <laughs> <laughs> then he's like where are you staying i'm like well we had a family friend that um had a flat that was empty in pretoria and he was like you can stay there but i have no idea how you're gonna get to johannesburg so i was like i'll make a plan so 
I was sort of commuting from Pretoria to Johannesburg, which is about an hour or so to get there by 6 a.m. And then after, after they, cause they had weights, and then after they had weights, they would, um, they'd go to university because they're all students and stuff, but I had fucking nothing to do. So after they had weights, I'd just sit in the middle of Joburg and just hang out until like 3 o'clock. And I took the bus to where they trained, and I'd show up there and train. And they just let me train with them. And um, I wasn't one of the players. You just said you can come do weights and train with us, but you've missed the trials, you've whatever. But because you've come all this way, you know, you might as well. So I did that and just literally campaigning, sucking up, filling up water bottles, doing all that stupid shit. And it actually worked. And then you got you got the full-time gig with the Lions. Yeah. Do you think there'll ever be like a pathway um, for Zimbabwe kids to play for the national team, play for Zimbabwe? Well, there, they, there is, and they do, but the problem is there's no, there's no money. Rugby is hard to do when you have a day job. You know what I mean? And if you want to play for Zimbabwe, you got to have a day job. There's, they're not going to pay you money. It's just all those guys just play for passion. So how do they get it so that it's professional in Zimbabwe? Like what, what, what could be done? Well, I'm not an economist. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think it's one of those kind of similar to Argentina where they, they started getting that Argentina side to play in the Vodacom Cup years ago. And mm. then they, they got the Argentina side to eventually gel into Super Rugby. And you know what I mean? And that's mm. helped their national side and stuff. And I think if on a sort of grassroots level, because there's a lot of good players in Zimbabwe who are younger, but then they all stop playing because there's no future in it. In South Africa, if you are good at rugby and you play well, you get contracted and you just and you become a professional. But in Zimbabwe, if you are good at rugby, you are going to just be good at rugby and have no job. Do you know what I mean? So if... If they were to get younger guys, like an under-21 side that would play in the South African under-21 tournament, because Zimbabwe is not that far from South Africa. And if they could get younger guys involved, at least they'd have more more exposure. So the guys who are good can maybe get picked up by other teams. Mm. Other people will get interested, strengthen the squad. And I think build from the bottom up, I think, is the best way. But yeah. Throwing a bit of uh, just a bunch of cash at them is is, is probably not the best. Probably idea. not going to go that far, is it? Yeah. And then you make the Springboks. You played for Springboks 2008. Mm-hmm. How was that? Like, you know, you grew up in Zimbabwe and then you're suddenly playing for South Africa. Did you feel South African? I mean, do you feel it's, South it's African weird. a little like, bit All now? these questions have like, the way to answer them has this crazy backstory. But I had a, a big falling out with my dad around about the time I left to go to South Africa. And uh, I went to South Africa, I did the whole pursue rugby thing. Uh, from the time I was 18 to, I made the Springboks when I was 22, I think it was. So four years, four and a half, whatever. And um, that whole time I was, you know, pursuing this thing, I technically qualified by residency. And uh, so I was selected. I, I was playing for the Stormers at the time. And about... We had a training camp for the Springboks for about a week. And then they announced a team to play Wales, which was going to be my first test. And I was in the squad. They announced this like on the like on the Friday. And the test was going to be the next Saturday. Um, Monday morning, uh, they after training, they pulled me aside and they're like, look, um, like the media guy from the Springboks, he says, look, there's a story that, that sort of surfaced that I was alerted about, about your family. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? And he's like, well, over in Zimbabwe... Um, there's there's a guy who's claiming that your father took his farm. So quick rewind, Robert Mugabe in about 2000, 2001, declared all the farms state property that were owned by white people and they distributed them to black people. And after they'd done that, a few other 
people who didn't get farms would say, say you had a farm, mm. okay, you, your family, you have a farm, it's 100 hectares, and uh, you got tobacco and, I don't know, maize and all that shit growing, mm-hmm. and you got your cows. So what people will do is they would, they would bribe the government to order what's called a Section 8. A Section 8 is, is a document saying the government is repossessing your farm. So what I do is I get into cahoots with someone in the government, and I tell them I want his farm. And they're like, okay, so they issue a Section 8 for you, right? And they give you the Section 8 on Monday morning. And you're supposed to have, I think it was 90 days or something to leave your farm. But they'll give you that Section 8 that is expiring at the end of the week, basically. You're, you have to somehow pack up all your shit and leave in a week. But then once your Section 8 is issued, I show up that night with like 50 guys or with like flaming torch, like stereotype like aggressive mm. riot type of basic setup just people screaming people with big panga knives and machetes and stuff scaring your kids banging on the door throwing petrol bombs through the window and they scare you to leave so you pack up your family and you leave and you leave everything there and they move in and that is essentially what my father did so this guy was saying that um he had written this whole thing and he had sent it to like every radio because he found out about me and he found out that I was the guy who'd taken his farm. My dad had taken the farm a couple of years prior to this and he, 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 he literally just wrote an account, an exact account of, of what happened exactly and what my dad did and how they showed up and they, they tied up some of his workers and threw them in the swimming wow. pool. And, um, and my dad was the guy who organized it all, who orchestrated it. So, his whole narrative was, you know, this guy took my farm and, and took everything I had and pumped that money into his son. And now his son is becoming a springbok. You know, how is this right? And I hadn't seen my dad for years. So um, I've, I still haven't seen my dad to this day. And um, so he's like, it's going to come out in the paper this week. You know, um, what, what, you know, do you want to have a statement? Do you want to have, is this, is this true? Is this, and I, I wasn't there, but I had a rough idea of of what happened and and what was true and what wasn't and it was mostly true apart from the fact like i just wasn't involved in it i was on my own trying to you know figure things mm. out on my own um I, I hadn't seen or spoken to my dad in years so but how do you prove that how do you say you know so um so they were going to write about it and then then peter de Villiers was like look can we not make a plan for for it to come out after this week, because I'm trying to play this guy on Saturday. And they're like, okay, we can get them to not publish anything until until Sunday. And I was and he was like, Okay, are you are you cool with that? And and from and I was like, Yeah, I'm fine. And and my head just completely just went. I, I was just wiped. Um I remember on the captain's run and, and I couldn't remember any of the fucking line outs, any of the calls. And Victor Matfield, he was playing at the time. He fucking lost his head with me. And he was like, what the fuck is this shit? Like, with the spring box, you, you can't do any of the fucking lineups we've been practicing all week. And, and I, I couldn't, you, you can't put your hand up and say, I'm really worried about Sunday. You guys are going to hear Did, some fucked up things about me. Was Victor Matfield aware of what was also coming? No, no one else was aware. It was just... Right, yeah. right. So yeah. as far as he was concerned, you it was were just... me, Peter De Villiers, and the media guy. And as far as everyone else is concerned, you know, we're, we're playing a test against Wales and I wasn't switched on. So you can imagine how that goes. Yeah, like, it wouldn't have looked great. Yeah, it wasn't, 
especially for lineouts, like Victor Matfield was, was super anal about lineouts, about the detail and how many steps and that type of shit. And there I was fucking everything up. So um, I played the game. I, I was pretty average. I played against, I mean, no, no disrespect. And I, I scrummed against Gethin Jenkins, who is not renowned as, you know, a powerful scrummager, but he was pushing me all over the place. It was, it was a fucking nightmare. You know, usually on your debut, you come on, you have a couple of rounds, you score a try. And you're like, oh, he's yeah. going to have such a great future. Mine was the opposite. And um, Did you even enjoy the anthems and things like that? Because that's usually quite a big thing for the Springboks, is like the anthems and the atmosphere. No, nah, and- from, from the moment they told me about the farm thing, I was so you gotta understand that there's that thing where a lot of the guys, a lot of the the white guys who play for South Africa are from they're they're from farmer families, you know what I mean? Their their parents have farms, mm. etc. And now they're gonna find out that I'm this fucking farm stealer guy. Do you yeah. know what I mean? So some I'm the whole time I'm just nervous about what my teammates are gonna think about me after this. Like how can I carry on with guys like Bucky's and guy you know, like how and Skulkberg and all these farming people and and I'm this this guy who's done this to this random like random person's family and then how, how do you i don't know how do you reconcile that so i couldn't i just i just i was i was maybe i was a bit too young but like peter de villiers told me let's just forget about this shit they're gonna say what they're gonna say and then it's gonna be over but i i just couldn't that's i ended up leaving south africa because of it i just couldn't i couldn't come out of that funk if you will because i was i was pissed off my dad i thought he ruined my debut you know so I I became bitter and I didn't want to play in South Africa anymore because sometimes people like because um you get in South Africa you get sponsored cars you don't you don't really get that in the UK but like a car dealership will say you know like a Nissan dealership will say mm. okay we'll give you a Nissan it'll say and then we'll use you for advertising so you have the car for free we'll pay for the fuel the insurance everything it'll just say um, I don't know London Nissan proudly sponsors Brian Mujati. Mm. massive font on the sides and stuff but mm. it's a free car so i'd had one of those cars and like every once in a while someone would stop me at the lights and like tap on the window and i'd like wind down my window and be like are you brian Mujati? and i'm like yeah i am you know all proud and she's like fuck off back to your country like <sighs> shit like that would happen and um yeah i just i just got like mm, in my head and then i said to my agent just get me out of here and uh i almost signed for rusting 92 i met with the owner and, but they were like second division in France. So I was mm-hmm. like, nah. And then um, I spoke to people at Brieve and then uh, there's all learning French thing. And then Northampton Saints turned up because uh, there was a prop called Ewan Murray back in the day as a British line. And uh, on that British line's towards South Africa, he broke his ankle and he was going to be out for like six months. So they were like desperately looking for a prop. And, and I was like, oh, I'll take it. Yeah. And that's how, that's how I ended up here in the UK. Wow! Now, now being now you've been playing over here, and you is there? I mean, there's still that bitterness there that you know you could have played a lot more for the Springboks, or I don't know. I um, I, I don't know. If it's 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 hard to say. I mean, how can you? I would have liked to. I played I played a couple of games. I played twelve games, but I I think I only started three. So I, I was just, but the whole time I was just sort of there. I wasn't really into it. As soon as I mm. I was just looking for the exit. As soon as I found yeah. a way out, I just left. And then, weirdly enough, once I got out of it, I spent the rest of my career trying to get back in. And didn't and did, couldn't really. <laughs> yeah. So, so was that because of your visa, or was that? Yeah, because I'd been out the country for a long time, and because there was a time when I was playing all right, and uh, 
they wanted to bring me back in for one of the World Cups back in the day, but um, I just couldn't. I couldn't qualify again. Does that happen a lot with spring with, with South Africans that um, come over here for too long? Because I know it, your it did happen with no. It, it happened with it happened with me and with Beast. Uh, there was a time when they wouldn't let Beast play for South Africa because he. We had both qualified at around about the same time. I think he debuted the next, the following week after me. You know, he's played like 150. Yeah. <laughs> and um, at some point, I think after he'd played like 60 or 70 games, they said he couldn't play anymore because he didn't have a South African passport. And then the whole process of him getting a South African passport took like six, seven months and he missed a whole bunch of test rugby because of it. So yeah, they, they really tightened up on that stuff a bit later on. What have you made of the Springboks now? Like the, how they how they're tracking it. Rusty Erasmus has come in and made a big difference. Rusty's a good coach. Um, Have you had much to deal with him? Yeah, he coached me when I was at the Stormers. He, I was at the Lions and I broke my hand and um, and I was going to be off for like six months and he still signed me. So he's he's a good guy. But of all the people that have coached me and like all around the world, he's the most sort of outside the box thinker type coach I've mm. experienced. Like he's he pays attention to like things that no one else would be paying attention to. So he's. I think they're in good hands. I think there doesn't seem to be... The biggest problem with South African rugby is there's always some sort of racial tension with selecting people and this and that. And there doesn't seem to be any of that sort of noise. It's all about... For the first time in a long time in South African rugby, it's just about rugby. And it's not about... This minister said we need X amount of mm. black players or we need... You know what I mean? It's, what are your thoughts on that? Um, it's hard because I am... I'm one of those people that... I didn't grow up in South Africa, so I didn't experience, like, my, I don't have, like, I wasn't raised by people that were oppressed by apartheid. So a lot of that tension, like, a lot of that people who grow up in that in that environment, they they transmit that, that, that bad blood to their kids. Yeah. You know, so there's a lot of guys my age who are, who feel a certain way about white people and have a fear and, and you know what I mean? There's, there's just a tension there that's, that I didn't have because I, I went to school where I was one of the minority people because it was mostly white people at the school. I've always played in rugby teams where most of the time I was the only fucking black guy. So I don't think I experienced racism or anything like that. So I, I don't know. But I, I know that there's definitely an issue with, there was back in the day of just selection. A lot of guys would just not be picked up because they weren't exposed to a high level of rugby. Not because they mm. weren't good enough, but just they just weren't, those opportunities weren't there. And I think... That's what the whole transformation thing was about, is just forcing people to look at other talents mm-hmm. as well. Not necessarily having to pick them, but at least consider other people. And to a certain extent, it's worked because now there's... Because if you've, if you've ever like kept up with South African rugby, if you watched the World Cup 95, for example, yeah. there was one black guy in the field. Yeah, Chester Williams. Yeah, but on the, have you seen that picture where on the drop goal, everyone on the field is in the shot except him? No, I haven't. I've never if you, noticed if you, that. There's that. If you Google that Joel Stransky drop goal, just Google Joel Stransky drop goal, Chester Williams. There's a picture where everyone is on the field, all 15 of the All Blacks, and there's 14 Springboks, and Joel Stransky's kicked the drop goal, and Chester Williams is like blocked by the post. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's pretty bizarre. But um, there was, from then, there's one black guy to, you know, like mid-2000s, I, I was telling you about guys like Lawrence Sapaka and this guy called Tolani Bobo. You know, there was a long time there was two or three because that was like the government law that they had to have two or three players. But now there's like, even for the Springboks, it's like five or six. And it was always mm-hmm. usually a wing or maybe a center. It was never like second rows and props and mm-hmm. shit like that. So 
I think it's pretty cool. I don't think it's an issue. No. And your captain as well. Yeah, captain as well. Mm, that's, that is that is bizarre to see. Yeah. If you've especially if you'd seen it before, like what it was and and come up in it, and to act, like it was hard for me to believe, like for me, a fucking thirty four year old guy, it was hard for me to believe that they'd picked a black guy to be captain. I thought that was just. Why did you find it hard to believe? You had a Springboks coach, Peter De Villiers, who was a black guy. Yeah, but that's that's a different story. I mean, we talk about that another time. But like, can come back to that. No, it was just I never imagined that that would happen. Mm. Like I, I'd always thought, yeah, they'd be. It's like it's like how when you know, like black Americans talk about Barack Obama. Mm. It's like the same vibe. You're yeah. Like, what the fuck? This is crazy. It's kind of like you just didn't imagine it. You know what I mean? You knew it was possible, but you never thought it would happen. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. So you mentioned Peter Davies. <laughs> what was he like as a coach? Like, was he as crazy as he comes across in the media? Was he that erratic? Or yeah, he was. He was worse, I think. Then it was in the media. It was worse. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you a story. I, when I was picked for the Springboks, we had a training camp in Somerset West or Somerset, anyway, somewhere in, out in the outskirts of Cape Town and big fancy hotel and we're training in some like rugby field, some sort of private place. And we show up there and there was, I think it was about 40 of us who were picked in the squad. And uh, he says, guys, we are going to play rugby. That's all we're going to do. We're not going to watch videos and do all this stupid analysis we're going to play rugby okay so the africans have rugby in their veins and we're going to play rugby so i was like all right cool uh we go to training and we warm up and stuff and he says i told you we're going to play rugby tonight he's like yeah so play and he just puts the ball down so everyone's like what the fuck is going on and then he walks off and then um a couple of senior guys like let's let's play touch so we start playing touch the next thing i know like Half an hour, 45 minutes go by. We're just playing non-stop touch in our first training session. And then we had a session that afternoon, same thing. And I was like, what the fuck? And then um, as, it, as it so happened, the, um, I think the Sharks were still in the semifinals of Super Rugby. So the Sharks players weren't there. And uh, they arrived a couple of days later. John Smith and co arrived. And John Smith's like, what the fuck is going on here? You know, we need to be doing line outs and scrums and shit like that. We got, you know, it was still, it had just become the nation's cup. It was just, well, I still call it Tri-Nations. What was it called now? I think it's the rugby championship now. Yeah, yeah the, the championship was coming up and all this shit. We had tests against Wales and we weren't even practicing. We were just playing touch. We played touch for like two, three days on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> and what and that then, sounds insane doesn't it it's, but it's real it's crazy that actually happened it's so crazy and as far as like when the so the senior players i'm guessing like john smith senior players then completely took over the the time i was there john smith victor Bucky's, all these guys were those those guys who won the world cup like a year the year before yeah. basically um with brian and banner and all those boys they sort of thought okay we need to take charge out otherwise this might get a bit crazy and it was sort of like that and it was kind of fucked up for me because um bismarck duplessis was was the hooker was probably the best hooker in the world at the time Mm -hmm. so he had to play and um john smith was captain with no position so he was like i'm gonna play tight head prop and i was the other tight head prop (laughs) so i was completely fucked so he was captain and I was having to come on and test after 70 minutes and shit. So it wasn't ideal. It just added to the, to the bitterness and oh age. My God. <laughs> so, and then as far as like De Villiers and his team speeches, were, were they equally as, as erratic? Like what would he say before games and how would he, like, can you remember any sort of 
Anything else that you used to I say? I can't remember anything sort of standout-ish. Um, funny enough, like, Peter Villiers is not even near the top of, like, I've heard some crazy pre-match speeches. And, really? Yeah. But um, he was the craziest. No, he didn't, he didn't say much that, that I can recall. But, like, John Smith spoke a lot. John Smith was a great leader. Like, mm. I don't think I've played with anyone else like that. Like, some guys, when they speak, everyone else just like everyone will stop and be like okay this guy's talking we need to fucking listen like he's got that he mm. just had that energy i've not been around anyone else like that but yeah it was it was very player run when i was when i was in my time playing for the Springboks. you mentioned you've had some crazy speeches from from coaches any that stick out uh a lot of interesting moments in france um sticking out we played yeah we played we played toulon when i was at sale and uh Steve Diamond walks in and he says, you know, guys, we're playing Toulon. They're up here. He puts his hands up, up above his head, one hand above his head, and we're down here. The other hand are at his waist. If we play these guys nine times, if you play these guys ten times, out of of ten times, they'll beat us ten times. That's just fact. That's what it is. But we're playing them, so here we are. I'm like, what the fuck? (laughs) We had this hooker called Neil Briggs. He looks at, 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 at Briggs. He says, Briggsy, They've got, what's his name, Gallardo, playing for, was that his name? That hooker that plays for Toulon, the French guy. Yeah, yeah. And if I had to choose between him and you, Briggsy, I would sign him every time. <laughs> what's that guy's name? You should Google it. Gallardo. Yeah, the, the, the French hooker. I would pick him every time. <laughs> and I'll say that about a lot of you, you guys in this room right now. I'm not being mean. That's just how it is. That's the fact. That's the level of play, the team we're playing against today. But we're going to go out there and we're going to give it our best and we're going to play our patterns and we're going to do what we're here to do, what we're paid to do because we're professionals. And then you sent us out there and we got fucking hammered. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, Jesus. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Spring is here and you can now get almost anything you need for your sunny days delivered with Uber Eats. What do we mean by almost? Well, you can't get a well-groomed lawn delivered, but you can get a chicken parmesan delivered. A cabana? That's a no. But a banana? That's a yes. A nice tan? Sorry. Nope. But a box fan? Happily yes. 
A day of sunshine? No. A box of fine wines? Yes. Uber Eats can definitely get you that. Get almost, almost anything delivered with Uber Eats. Order now. Alcohol in select markets. Product availability may vary by region. See app for details. Um, and, as, a, as a coach, was he like, like, how was he as a coach? Was he just... Very hands-off. Hands-off. Like, we'd be in a huddle, right? And we'd be chilling there, like, doing line-outs and shit. Like, he'd be on his phone. Like, if anyone at sales is listening to this, they'll tell you. He'd be on his phone the whole practice session. Like, the whole fucking time. Okay, he'd be forwards coach, right? We're doing line-outs. And then, we, you know, every once in a while, you do a few line-outs. You come in for a huddle. Then he'd say some things. And in the middle of him saying something, his phone would ring. And then he would just, you'd just pick up. Hello? And he just started having a full-on conversation on the phone. And all fucking 12 of us are stood around him while he's just chatting around the phone. Like, for real. For like three, four minutes, twiddling thumbs and stuff. Then he'd put the phone down. And he'd be like, all right, carry on. And then we carry on the line outs. And then he'd be like, back on the phone again. So he he obviously had a lot of fingers and a lot of pies. But he's, um, I think he's a good rugby administrator, if you will. Like, good at finding people. You know what I mean? To to get the job done. Right. But he wasn't... As far as the coaching side. He wasn't though, really, he wasn't I mean, coach. coaching, coaching. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. Like, there would be video sessions where we just watch Exeter doing pick and goes and be like, that's how we're going to play. We're just going to copy that. <laughs> that happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it was interesting. But, like, good guy, though. I mean, not not um, just, just a different approach. You know what I mean? Like... Um, yeah. Meant well, really passionate, uh, but just really just different approach. It was quite interesting. It was a good time at sale. As far as your career, like your your career highlights, like what, what would you look back on and think that was highlights. probably as good as it got for me? Um, probably the time I played at Northampton. I think I uh, I was at Northampton Saints for four or five years, and because um, I sort of got there and I just got out of my head, I was. I was super emo when I was younger. Yeah, and um, you know, I just for some reason I just decided, you know what, fuck it, just press the reset button and start again. No one here knows me. No one gives a shit. And I, I think I played all right there, and I had a good time there. And uh, yeah, that was probably the best time I had playing rugby. Any any sort of moment there that was better than others? The moment, like what do you mean, moment like, in the game? Like you made like the Heineken Cup final, didn't you? Yeah, we did, but uh, it was not the best. I think we were going to be at the. I think maybe Saris have done it. I think at the time we were on course to be the first team to go all the way through that tournament without losing a single game. And uh, I think at half time we went we went in against Leinster like three, at least three tries. They had to score at least three tries just to be to get ahead of us. So it was a slam dunk. You know, I remember walking past the trophy and like imagining. Like what I was gonna put in it afterwards. Really? So you were that far ahead of yourself? It was over. It was a wrap. Like if you watch that game, it was over. We scrummed the shit out of them. We more we we hammered them everywhere, and and it just unraveled in the second half. But like in like a colossal way, not in a oh we had it was bad. Like it completely mm. like the bottom fell out, mm. you know? and it was bizarre. Like it wasn't like a I switched off or anything, but it was it cause you, how yeah it just happened. So not a highlight. <laughs> yeah. No, not the best, no. No. As far as the players you've played played with over the years, who who do you sort of look back and go, God, he was he's the best player I've ever played with? The best player? Yeah. Well, that's hard. Um the best rugby player 
I've ever played with is probably Skull Grits. In terms of like pure rugby talent, like if he was taller, he could play second row. If you like, he, you know, I think he started his career as a center, and they, and he was at a school where like I think seven or eight of the guys in his high school were Springboks. Right. So you couldn't get a place in the team and stuff. But I mean, he was. I played with them. I played with them at the Lions. I played with them at the Stormers. I played with them all over the place, actually. Yeah, and um, did it with uni together, the same uni. Um, he, yeah, he he was he was he was really talented. He still has. He made the World Cup squad, didn't he? Yeah, he's still going, and like really great guy. Yeah. Uh, on top of that, uh, Juan Martin Hernandez is probably the most underrated. One of the best tens I've ever like, probably the best ten I've played with. Amazing rugby player, yeah. yeah. Just silky smooth hands, kicks both feet. Not a coward, you know. You can put a shoulder in and make a few tackles. He's another high. He's another guy that stands out to me. Are there any players that really stood out for you, like on nights out? Any guys that could really, really pump it? Really? Nights out. Um, hmm. Uh, any really loose stories of any players in particular? Uh, there's a lot of married guys, you know. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of married guys. I don't know who's listening, but um, yeah, I played with some interesting guys. Yeah, I, I don't mind. I don't mind talking shit about myself, but I, yeah. I don't want to throw people under the bus. Fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. If you were, if you're going to have a dinner party hmm. and you're going to invite three people, dead or alive, who, who would you who would you bring along? I would have Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, it'd be good. I've, chat. Been, I've been obsessed with Arnold Schwarzenegger since I was a kid. I tried to be a bodybuilder. That was my first attempt at making something in my life. Um, Have you watched that? Is it Pumping On? Yeah, he's like, I like yeah. the pump. Yeah, I'm coming all the time. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's bad. In the gym, I'm coming. In yeah. the home, I'm coming. Yeah, that's the way. I'm coming it. all the time. Yeah. Um, but like his story is incredible about how he was this dude. He literally gymmed his way into, you know. American politics movies it's it's crazy uh, I'd have Arnold there just to tell other people that I hung out with Arnold and uh, who else that's one two other people mm, Kurt Cobain Kurt Cobain Kurt Cobain uh, I was obsessed with Nirvana as a kid yeah I listened to a lot of that grungy you know Pearl Jam he's got a good documentary as well yeah a good documentary on yeah. Him. Oh, I've forgotten the name of it now um, he is twisted I don't think he killed himself. What do you think? I happened? think his missus shot him. <laughs> well, that's just my theory. Um, and who else? Who else? Peter Green. Peter you know Green. Peter Green. Peter Green is the guy who started Fleetwood Mac. Right. Yeah. Um, for a while there, again, I go through these phases where I'm just obsessed with things. I was obsessed with Fleetwood Mac. This guy basically started. He wanted to start a band, and uh, in the '60s. Uh, there was a big um, resurgence of blues music. You know, like all these, a lot of these bands, Zeppelin, The Stones, a lot of these bands started as blues bands. And uh, they were mimicking all that music they were hearing from down south in America. And Peter Green wanted to start a blues band. and uh, But he couldn't find other people to be in, in the band. So he, he had these two buddies and he was like, look guys, will you be in the band? And if you be in the band, I'll name the band after you. One guy was called Fleetwood and the other guy was called Mac. And came Fleetwood Mac, and they were like a three-piece blues band. And then um, at some point in the 60s, they were completely strung out on LSD and heroin and all that shit. And Peter Green decided, you know, we're making a lot of money. We're becoming famous. Because at the beginning, the band was called Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac. And uh, we're making a lot of money, and I think we should give all the money away. All the money we make, we should give it all away. And... uh, all the concerts we play, we should feed people, you know, 
Fila, all that shit. He was he really went with that. He really mm, rode that wave. Mm. And the other two guys are like, poof, uh, maybe not. So they they kicked him out and they got their girlfriends to be in the band. And that's how it evolved to the Fleetwood Mac of, you know, Dreams and all those other shit songs that everyone loves. But the early Fleetwood Mac was the better one. All right. Well, thanks for coming, Brian. And thank you very much for listening to this episode of Rugby Pod Sessions. And we'll be back with another episode next month.